0: We're continuing our series about Lent or that season of the year when we turn our thoughts towards the death of Christ and the events that lead up to it. And we've been looking at the last week in the life of Christ before he was crucified. Helps us to focus in and to remember what it's really all about. Sometimes we lose sight of what. Uh, believing is all about, and what Christianity really means. And this helps us that we could focus in on it real close. We'll be looking at Mark's Gospel, chapter 11 and 12, and then into John's Gospel too, as we try to put together the whole story of what happened leading up to the death of Christ. And we'll be moving back and forth a little bit so we can catch certain details. The long-time habit of getting up early in the morning still hasn't left me, maybe never will. <clears throat> it was quarter to four last Friday morning when I heard a noise outside. Although I hadn't heard it for a while, I recognized it right away. It came from the field just behind my house, and coyote began to howl then another one joined in. And then another one, and another one, and another one. And soon a an whole pack of coyotes were howling in the night. It was a beautiful moonlit night. They were howling and yipping away like they do. Now the thing about coyotes is that you just don't see them in the daytime. I see deer out in the field behind the house. I never see a coyote in the daytime. They're always work behind the scenes somewhere out of sight. Even though there's a pretty good-sized group of them, you almost never see them. They will clear out all the rabbits and anything else they can find to eat, but always unobserved. And that moonlit time howling is all that gives them away, so you might not even know they were there other than that, but for the most part... They live secret lives behind the scenes and out of sight. In our thoughts today, there's something going on. It's out of sight, it's behind the scenes, and it's something sinister and dark. The temple complex covers 27 acres of property, and on it are several buildings where the leaders of the temple hold meetings behind closed doors, and they're busy. The reason for their meetings has to do with the events that have happened in the last two days of our story. Recall last week we said on Sunday of that week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey surrounded by a huge crowd of people shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Pharisees tried to stop the cheering crowd, but were unsuccessful. So the whole event just made them angry. And Jesus returned to the temple Monday. And when he arrived, he tipped over the tables of the money changers, drove out all the sellers of lambs and doves, and he said in a stern voice, My house is meant to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. And his demeanor was so forceful that no one tried to oppose him. And although we aren't given a look behind those closed doors, we know they were discussing how they could stop Jesus. If Jesus would appear all by himself, they could just take him into custody. But every time Jesus is in the temple, he's surrounded by large crowds who just adored him. And so caution has to be used so as not to anger the crowds that surround Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks before, we get one peek into the back room meetings of the priests. The Sanhedrin was a ruling body of 70 men, sort of a mixture of our legislature and court. They convened a secret meeting when they heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And listen to what Caiaphas, the high priest, said at that meeting. Listen to what he says. They gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What will we do? For this man does many miracles. And if we let him alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come, take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider it as an expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and the whole nation should not perish. And from that day forth they took counsel together, For to put him to death. The plan is. We've got to kill Jesus of Nazareth. But. Really stands out. You notice the attitude. On display. Caiaphas says to the people gathered around him. You know nothing at all. (laughs) Nice way to talk to people. You don't know anything. Or. I know what to do. And you poor fools don't know anything. It's a condescending, arrogant attitude. And that attitude would show itself over and over again as they attempt to destroy Jesus. Sunday had been a bad day for them, Jesus riding into town. Monday was worse when he cleared the temple. And sure enough, Tuesday morning, here he comes again. Jesus is back, once again, surrounded by a big crowd. Now, the plan is to discredit Jesus in front of the crowd. And their attitude, that shouldn't be a problem. After all, he's a carpenter from Galilee. He's from the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. And besides, he grew up in Nazareth. Can't get much worse than that. And he has no education. He's never sat under a rabbi for training. So if we challenge his credentials in front of the crowd, what can he say? So let's go out and put an end to this Galilean out in the temple yard. So out of the back room, coming out from behind the locked doors, Comes a group of leaders all dressed in their fancy clothes and finery and looking very important. Mark chapter 11, verse number 27. They come again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and scribes and elders. And say unto him, by what authority does thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? to do these things. Now, there's two questions that they ask. Number one, by what authority? And number two, who gave you the authority that you exercise? Now, in order for us to understand the question, we need to use language of today so we can understand it. The word we use is ordination. To ordain in its basic form means that something is ordered and it is meant to be. So a person who wants to be a minister will be ordained by a group of men who question him and see if he's qualified. If he answers the questions, seems to be qualified, then they say, okay, you are ordained. That is, he was meant to be a minister, So ordination is a group of men who say to a new candidate, yes, yes, you were meant to be a minister. We give our approval. Therefore, you are now ordained. That's how we do it today. Now, my friends, sometimes those groups of men are honest, holy men who truly want to do God's will. Other times... Those groups of men are prejudiced with a party spirit. That's why many of America's pulpits today have been filled with preachers who don't believe that the Bible is God's word. They believe it is just fables and fairy tales, and many of our colleges and ordination boards are full of men who do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible, therefore they ordain anybody who agrees with them stick them in a pulpit in the Bible God had his way God ordained men to do his work he put his approval on them some of them were highly educated Isaiah the Apostle Paul others had no education at all prophet Amos was a farmer Peter was a fisherman that was God's way he chose who he wanted But in Jesus' day, the rabbis were like college professors. And if the rabbi had a student he thought was educated enough and qualified, the rabbi would recommend his student for ordination. And Sanhedrin would usually approve the student and he was ordained. And that meant because he was ordained, he could stand out in the courtyard of the temple and teach people whenever he wanted. So the question to Jesus has two parts. First one is, by what authority? Or in other words, who was your rabbi? And the second part of the question is, who gave you this authority, or did the Sanhedrin approve you? So the question these men put to Jesus is, okay, who's your rabbi, and did the Sanhedrin approve you to be standing here teaching in our temple? Now let's see what Jesus answers. Verse 29, Jesus answered, said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was it from heaven or of men. Answer me. Now, we tend to think that Jesus was never ordained. He just had God's approval, and that's enough. And that is true. But there was someone who approved Jesus. Yes, there was. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry... John the Baptist saw Jesus come walking over the hill and he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus went down in the Jordan River to be baptized and John said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And later John said about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus had a man's approval, John the Baptist. So Jesus says, now tell me, fellas, (laughs) was John the Baptist sent from heaven, or was he just another man? Verse 31, they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? If we say of men, they feared the people, For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said to Jesus, We cannot tell. Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. There they are in front of this whole big crowd. We don't dare say that John wasn't a prophet. The crowd would rise up against us. And if we say John the Baptist was sent from heaven... And Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe it? So they answered, well, we can't really say. And Jesus said, well, neither can I. (laughs) So their plan to discredit Jesus only discredited themselves. So their temple rules and their arrogant attitude backfired. Back to the secret rooms they go and behind the locked doors They meet again. If our religious rules didn't work, then we'll trip him up with politics. Sounds familiar, huh? Mark chapter 12, verse number 13. They sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And so... Two political parties. The Pharisees are a political party. The Herodians are backers of King Herod. We're going to send the politic boys out, and they'll catch Jesus in a trap. Verse 14 And when they were come, they said unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, carest for no man, that thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God and true. Is it lawful? To give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? You can tell politicians right away, can't you? (laughs) Because they're trying to butter him up. Oh, you're wonderful. You always tell the truth. And they try to appeal to his vanity. Of course, Jesus doesn't have vanity. (laughs) So let's see what Jesus says. He, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt thee? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They and said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. It's a tricky question. Is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar. They didn't say, is it necessary? Because it was. They didn't say, is it wise? Both of those were true. But they say, is it lawful? Now, all the Jews hated the Roman occupation, and all the Jews especially hated paying Roman taxes. So if Jesus says, you've got to pay the Roman taxes, there's no choice, then the people in the crowd around him would call him a traitor supporting Rome. But if he says, no, don't pay the Romans, then they can turn him over to the Romans as a rebel. Because the Romans had two rules. Number one, we collect all the taxes and we have the power to execute we have all control over capital punishment. It shows them a penny. It's got Caesar's image on it. Who's that? Well, it's Caesar. Then give it to Caesar. And give God what belongs to you. It's a brilliant answer. Only Jesus could see a way out of that trap. You had to be really sharp to get out of that one. So it's true. They can't pin him down. They can't discredit him. They can't arrest him. Right there under his nose, he walks and talks and teaches in the temple. That's Tuesday during the day. Tuesday afternoon, Jesus walks away from the temple out of Jerusalem and out to Bethany, two miles out of town. He will spend the evening with friends, and including in those friends Mary, Martha and Lazarus out of the reach of the men behind the locked door. But something happens on Tuesday night, John chapter 12, I'm reading at verse three. And Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. And then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying, she has kept this. For the poor, always you have with you. But me, you have not always. Mary, in deep gratitude for raising her brother Lazarus from the dead, takes a bottle of very expensive perfume, breaks the top off the bottle so it can't be sealed, pours it on Jesus' feet, And the smell of expensive perfume floats through the house. And one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, complains Why was this wasted? Could have been sold and the money given to the poor. It says, as a side note, Judas didn't give two hoots about the poor, he wanted the money so he could steal some of it for himself. Apparently Judas had been making withdrawals for some time. Why? What makes a thief steal money? Oftentimes he thinks he deserves it. It's something somebody owes him. Many a thief I've known has felt that they deserve more pay, more benefits, and if they don't give it to me, I'll help myself. Because I deserve it. So Judas complains about the wasted perfume. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Now over in Matthew, Jesus makes another comment that night. He says, verily I say unto you, wherever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, There shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Jesus says, Mary is going to be famous for what she did here tonight. Judas, put in his place by Jesus, told leave her alone, and then told that Mary would be famous, is full of bitterness. Two days before, on Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, I'm sure that Judas thought, okay, this is it. Jesus is about to make himself king of Israel, and I will be his, one of his prime ministers, and I will be both rich and famous. But Jesus never did. Proclaim himself the king of Israel that day. Instead, now here he is, Mary's wasting good money on Jesus. And Jesus says she'll be famous. And Judas is bitter and disillusioned. So after dark, he quietly sneaks out the door by himself. And he walks two miles back to Jerusalem in the dark. And by the torchlight, he re-enters the temple. And he walks through the empty courtyard to the back rooms. And he knocks on that locked door. As the door opens, He says, I'm one of Jesus' disciples. I want to talk to the leaders of the temple. In Mark 14, we see his conversation. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad, promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. The Jewish leaders couldn't trap him in his words. The politicians couldn't trap him. But it only takes one traitor. One traitor. And it says, hey, we're glad. Finally, we can get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth. Now some people think that Judas hoped to force Jesus to proclaim himself king by turning him over to the enemy. Other people think that Judas realized that Jesus would not proclaim himself to be king. Therefore Judas thought, I will join the opposition and get myself on the winning side. I'm sure that Judas was disappointed that Jesus didn't use Palm Sunday to make himself king, especially with all those crowds of people shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. It was a perfect opportunity, thought Judas. But Jesus wouldn't do it. Strangely enough, it was the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who made a sign over Jesus' cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Pilate would ask Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus didn't come to rule a kingdom. He came to rule over the hearts of men. To redeem people's lives. To rescue and pardon people. All the Jewish leaders couldn't trap him. And all the politicians couldn't take him. But one traitor would turn him over. Why? Jesus said... Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. Why? Because he was willing to sacrifice himself. Why? Because he sought to set up a kingdom, not like anyone had ever seen before, a kingdom full of love and forgiveness. And he would willingly offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And as the king of that kingdom on the cross, he makes an appeal as he hangs on the cross with his dying blood dripping down. He says, look at me, look at me. This is how much I love you. Hoping that it would awaken in us who look at him gratitude for all he did for us. That we could see that he was willing to take our place and willingly he suffered and willingly he died. And when we saw what he did, we'd look in our own hearts and be filled with pity and shame and would reach out in love and gratitude to him. And in so doing, he would conquer us with his love. The old song we sing says, I love thee because thou first loved me. Purchase my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. And if ever I love thee, My Jesus is now. That's why he was on the cross, so you could see it more clearly. He was a king of love. He set up a kingdom of love and forgiveness and a kingdom of mercy. And he invites you from his cross to partake in his love and experience his forgiveness and become a member of that kingdom. Tell the world around us, we got something you need. We got something you want. Come and join us. We'll walk together. We will enjoy the love of God and celebrate his bleeding love. He gave himself up to a traitor. Next week, Jesus' favorite meal. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you For what you did, we know that you could have just walked away from the whole thing and left us here. And we sure are glad you didn't. We thank you for giving yourself up, being so wise and knowing just how to do it. And so, for your willing sacrifice, we come, understand that you did it to capture us and to captivate our hearts that we might know who you are. So bless us as we trust you and love you and draw us close to yourself in this season as we come to think about what you did for us. We need your help. We ask you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, I'd like you to turn your hymn book, hymn number 187. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Hymn number 187, standing as we sing, My Jesus, I love thee. 187.
1: that we have done, we pray as we look upon you on that cross, wearing the thorn, thorny crown, the one that you took willingly on yourself, the one that you willingly laid your life down for your friends, and you have called us friends, so we pray that we would come to you for forgiveness, we ask that our hearts would be pure and clean before you, not because of our righteousness, but because of yours. We are grateful that you have done this wonderful thing. You have died to give us a chance and a hope to be forever with you, to be cleansed and our hearts to be washed white as snow. We are thankful for this opportunity, and we pray that we would watch you and love you, follow you, do what you ask us to do. May our hearts be ready to receive whatever it is you have for us. Protect us and be with us. Bring us back to this place and help our thoughts to be often on you throughout this coming week. We thank you for all these things in your name. Amen.